0: Can you fly into different airports on an RPL? Where can you actually join the circuit? Flight instructor qualifications for check and training opportunities? And when do you legally need to lodge a flight plan? All that and more coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. Coordinating on a bank Bank pressure rolling 30 degrees. 30, 30, 30, 30, 30, 30 G'day everyone and welcome to episode 58 of the Flight Training Australia podcast. The podcast all about flight training and flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. So last week I uh, proudly announced Flight Training Australia reaching number one on the Australian Aviation Podcast status uh, charts. Pretty cool, but another milestone slipped me by and that is that the podcast is now just over one year old. 9th of November... Uh, 2021, yeah, last year I posted the first podcast, completely nervous, worried about massive rejection and uh, despite that, here we are a year later, I've had some fantastic interviews, great topics and uh, so much more planned Lots more in the pipelines. Some really big interviews hopefully I'm trying to uh, land and make happen as well as just some other regular fantastic stories and uh, great info coming up. So make sure you hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell so you get notified for any new episodes coming out. It's actually been quite fascinating, um, the reach of the podcast so far. I've been getting messages from uh, people far and wide I actually got a uh, email to an interview I did a little while ago with my dad. Uh, it was from a gentleman named Ken who was the air traffic controller at the time. And he was the one who my dad sat next to on a bus seat and suggested he tried getting his pilot's license. Totally blew me away um, that you know this episode literally reached the grassroots of my dad's career. And um, that, yeah, Ken had heard it and uh, sent me a message as well. So it was fantastic. So, Kenny, for listening, today, Thanks for contacting me. And, um, yeah, look, some fantastic messages from all of you. It's been really great. So I'm glad you're all enjoying it. I'm going to do my absolute best to keep it uh, content rich and uh, just full of all the goodness that you guys need. Um, and, yeah. Bringing into that is what's really brought today's episode apart. I chucked, uh, or about, I chucked a, a bunch of questions on my Instagram story last week, and a heap of you responded, which is just fantastic. So I'm going to get through every single one of them, not all today, but uh, here we go with a few of those, and the rest I will get to. So if it's not today, do not worry, it will be in the next couple of weeks. Um, so keep an ear out. So the very first question is from Inop, and he asked, or she, uh, are you allowed to land at a different aerodrome than the one you took off from on a basic RPL? All right, well, the answer to that is pretty much straight out of the CASR, and that is uh, Section 61.470. Everything's all uh, coded there. You can jump in there, and that's where all the RPL privileges are. And the basic privileges of a RPL licence as a raw licence is you're allowed to fly within 25 miles of your departure aerodrome within the associated flight training area of that school and an area that is direct route between the departure aerodrome and the flight training area. So... What if you take off from one airport and there's another airport, another CTAF or whatever it is, within 25 miles? Can you go and land there? Well, the answer is yes, you can. However, you do obviously need to be proficient in that kind of airspace. Now, if it's obviously Class C or Class D airspace, you're going to need either controlled airspace or controlled aerodrome uh, endorsements added to your RPL. So if you haven't got those, well, then the answer would be no. If you're departing from a Class D aerodrome and then going to a Class G airspace, just heading out to a normal CTAF, then you can fly to that other aerodrome if it's within the training area or the 25 miles, but you need to know how to do non-controlled airport circuit joins and you need to know the radio calls associated with it and right-of-way and everything else. So that is perfectly within the realm of an RPL holder, nothing stopping you doing that at all. Now, I know some flying schools um, have said, no, you're not allowed to do that. That's not true. What they're saying is we don't want you doing that because we don't think you've received your training for it. It's a really simple solution to that. Go do a familiarization flight or two, do a practice run with an instructor, and then do a second flight as an assessment flight without them helping you. And if you can do that, there's no reason why. I had my GFPT back in the day, which is essentially the RPL equivalent, and I used to go to another CTAF aerodrome all the time. Now with the 25 miles, it potentially opens it up to several other aerodromes. So as long as you stay out of controlled airspace, you can navigate to these CTAFs. Uh, There's no problem with you doing that at all. You can't, however, go to a new airport and then reset your 25 miles. All right, The intention is the original airport you departed from. So even though you might land and then depart again, you're not resetting. You can't airport hop. All right. So hopefully, in op, that answers your question. Thank you so much for sending it in. All right. Second question is from C.L. Brumley, and um, he mentions that he flies paramotors. And at airports, it's not practical to do downwind and base. Your thoughts? All right. Well, my first thought is what the hell's a paramotor? (laughs) No, I had to look it up just to be sure that it was the little propeller behind the seat thing uh, with a parachute on top. So it is, it's a parachute with a motor. Um, Look, it's not my specialty. So I don't know whether there's uh, operational considerations or problems with flying a downwind and a base leg, the the main thing would be to conform with the standard circuit procedures uh, as far as the circuit join. So you can have a look in the Dave guide and that certainly takes you through what CASA's recommendations are uh, for circuit join procedures. And the biggest thing there really is um, making sure that we're not cutting people off. If you're going to, I'm assuming, come in potentially descending onto the live side of the circuit, well, you've got to make sure you're not coming down on top of anyone. And in the paramotor, I'm not sure how fast the forward velocity is, but I'm assuming it's not that much. So you could be descending down on someone who's quite some distance behind you, and they could fly right up to you very, very closely. If you're going to join inside the circuit and very tight, you need to be careful doing that. Um, You're not going to be in a normal fixed-wing aircraft's field of view. So I would be just really cautious and making some good radio calls and making sure that everyone is very, very clear as to what you're doing and you're obviously taking into account the traffic's closure uh, rate behind you so you can do that. If you have a look at the recommendations there, um, you know it's suggesting that you fly your overfly height and then join the circuit as per the diagram in the DVFR guide. And that's what I would generally do. If that's going to be problematic and there's no restrictions doing an opposite direction circuit, you might want to consider that. So at least you're out of the way of everyone catching you out. You'll be facing everyone approaching you on an opposing base and final as long as you can make sure that your timing fits in. But, yeah, a bit of a tricky one there. It it really depends on what other aircraft uh, are flying in the same airport that you are. So hopefully that helps you. All right, this one from George Moore. Do you need to hold a flight instructor rating to be check and training captain in an airline? And he then message me a little bit further just to expand that in regards to my question about needing an instructor rating for check and training, a lot of students tell me that once they've got their CPL and instrument ratings, they're going to do an instructor rating so they can one day be check and training captain. A lot seem to have the belief that it is a requirement under Part 121, but I haven't done enough research to validate this. People I know at Qantas and Virgin, though, say that it isn't a requirement to hold one. All right, to the best of my knowledge... This is a line training versus instruction sort of question. Airlines, uh, 135 operators, essentially the Part 119, as I've discussed previously, is coming into effect and that is going to require all charter operators, passenger carrying transport operators, to have a check and training process in place where everyone have to do OPCs and sh- check flights with an instructor. Now, if you look at all the wording in it, it is an instructor in the way that we think of one. Someone who has got a flight instructor rating with the appropriate training endorsements uh, needed to operate the uh, aircraft and under the, the flight rules that you operate under. So be it single or multi-engine class rating, design features, and potentially instrument rating, training endorsements, maybe even type rating training endorsements is typically what you're going to need. So if you want to go into check and training for an airline, initially what you'll be doing is line training. And line training is essentially someone who has experience and knowledge of the aircraft, the operations, the procedures, the company procedures, and the flight routes to be flown, but is not doing any hands-on instructional uh, work. All right, so you're not failing engines, you're not pulling circuit breakers, or doing manual gear extensions, or stalling, or any of those other things. That all requires a flight instructor rating, and is all covered in the in the regs. So you can be a line training pilot. And you can do that without an instructor rating. However, as soon as you want to start pulling uh, throttles and doing stalling and, and engine in and multi-engine aircraft, etc., then you need to be a flight instructor with the applicable training endorsement or endorsements. All right. And that's where it comes into play. So if you're going to go to an airline and jump in a simulator and get a 737 endorsement, you need to be getting that from someone who is appropriately qualified. And a general uh, line pilot is not that. You'll need to be with check and training staff. And this is the transitional change from the old car 217 days into the new training format where those qualifications need to be transitioned across to a flight structure rating with the training endorsements. All right, George, so hopefully that clears everything up for you, mate. All right, and finally, I have one. um, Who sent this? From BT747, when do I need to legally lodge a flight plan? All right, well, the answer to that one, we can get uh, partially from en route ARP, en route 1.10. And as you'll see, a lot of things have been deleted and starting to remove, uh, move out of the old en route and the ARP there across to our old mate, the MOZ, the manual standards. And this is now into the new rules section. So anything that used to be in the ARP that's not there anymore, it's all moved into part 91. And the manual of standards is where we're going to find that in chapter 9. And essentially what you're going to see is that the answer to this question is, it depends what operation you're flying and what airspace you're in. So if you're IFR, you need to submit a flight plan. If you're VFR, if you're in class C or D, you need to submit a flight plan. If you're VFR, all other classes... If you're doing air transport operations, which is not airlines, that means charter flying, or you're doing an overwater flight beyond gliding distance to land, you're flying in a designated remote area, pretty much everywhere up here in the top end, and at night proceeding beyond 120 nautical miles from the departure aerodrome, you need to submit either a flight plan, a flight note, or nominate a SAR time, all right? but you must do one or the other. So if you're not going to put a flight plan in, you should at least nominate a SAR time for your arrival, but probably the better one is the middle ground, is to leave a flight note with a loved one, um, someone in the office, someone at the flying school, someone at the charter company, and who understands what it means that if you've told them, if I'm not back at five o'clock, ring this number, then that's what they're going to do. Because a flight note means, you know, you need to have someone who's going to be able to action that because that's your only search and rescue method because otherwise air services don't know anything about it, neither does OSAR. So if it's none of those, well, you don't need to, but it does strongly recommend you leave something, all right? So I can understand some people not wanting to leave a flight plan in the system. If you've got Oz Runways or F-Plan or something like that, man, it is so fast. Once you've got your aircraft saved, you bang in the details, it puts a departure time about half an hour ahead and you just hit submit. It really takes no time at all, a for simplicity of the airspace you're operating in, and B, just to have that protection of a SAR time. If something does go wrong, um, someone's going to be looking for you. If you've got nothing, you're on your own. So it is something to really strongly think about and consider. All right, next one is from Tyndall underscore 14, and it is, is it worth, uh, as a fresh CPL, going to pay for an endorsement, e.g. Cessna Caravan? 208 or gas turbine engine, et cetera? Great question. Um, Oh, gosh, look, it really depends on where you are, what you've got your eye on. Is it worth just doing it for shits and giggles? No, not really. Um, It's just spending money for the sake of it. If you are going for a job, uh, a lot of people go get a bit of turbine time doing parachuting, um, that sort of thing, then look, hey, go for it. Um, but make sure you're doing it somewhere that's doing a proper training course. The thing with the caravan is it sort of falls out of this single-engine class rating training endorsement. Sorry, not training endorsement, just a single-engine class rating uh, subdivision. It's not a type-rated aircraft either, but it's considered just slightly a bit more complicated to just be a basic single-engine class aircraft. King Air Caravan, PC-12, all these sort of aircraft conquests, they all fall into this same category. So you need to do a special course of training, and that is then uh, finalised by conducting a flight review in the aircraft, and that's kind of what gives you your caravan endorsement, if you like. So make sure wherever you do it, you're getting some good ground school time and some good flying time going through all the sixty-one three eight five kind of stuff of normal and emergency operating procedures and and the like. As far as doing it, yeah. Look, I I wouldn't do it just because you might get to fly one one day unless, you know, you've got money to burn. Um, And if it's not something you're going to be doing soon, you're going to sort of spend this money... And then kind of forget it all, and go very, very, uh, yeah, cold on it all, and and it's you're just gonna not remember anything. So the idea is that you want to do do it if there's a opportunity of a job in the in the near future. Otherwise, I would tend to just wait. Um, a lot of operators that do have those sort of aircraft will pay for the endorsement for you as long as, you know, you give a decent return of service and all that sort of thing, um, then that's generally what would happen. So you've got to pick and choose. Some people do it and it works out. Others they end up um, no better off than before. Uh, so it's very much dependent on the individual and where you're going to. I would go and, you know, have a good talk to them first. I'm always very wary of people that say, if you go do this training with us or if you go get this, then we'll give you a job. You'll need to sort of maybe talk to some of the other uh, pilots or crew that are there and see what they think. And if they've all been told a similar thing and it worked out for them, well, then, you know, it's probably a fair deal. So see how you go with that one. All right, last one is um, from my good mate Dan, the Mallard guy. And he said, what is the best advice to a student about to start their multi-engine instrument rating? And he knows as well as I do that this can be some of the toughest training you're doing. Um, I'm doing someone at the moment. Craig, you're almost there, mate. Actually, today's the big day. He's got his test. I'll let you know next week how he went. (laughs) No pressure. But um, preparation is just absolutely paramount it might have been some time ago you did your irx so first of all you want to get all that back up to speed and understand it remember we're not answering CASA exam questions anymore we're, we're talking very very practical uh realistic flying uh, putting all these rules into play so really try and understand as much about ifr flying as you can come into it uh reasonably current don't necessarily have to be on the aircraft type especially if you're doing a combined uh, initial multi-engine and ifr training nothing wrong with that at all Um, but just make sure your basic training and your basic flying is up to speed if you've got a home simulator x-plane microsoft flight sim then get on that and get your instrument scan going get used to it read up on the gps in the aircraft find out what unit it is and get familiar with that. All those things will just help you be that more efficient um, with the operation of the equipment. Get some photos of the cockpit layout so you understand where uh, you're looking and how you set the frequencies and whatever else you need to know. It's all simple stuff, but it all just saves you time and money um, when you're mucking around trying to figure out how to make the GPS do what you want it to do and you mess up the approach or whatever else because of it. Uh, The other thing is airspace, especially if you're travelling, like uh, some people do come fly with me up here in Darwin. If you haven't been here before, just have a look at the airspace. Again, it's not that hard. I'll generally run simulated sessions in the simulator, um, replicating the radio calls and the way things are done up here or anywhere else. Um, So make sure that you... Get familiar with the local area. It will help you greatly with your flying. And ultimately, just eat well, sleep well, and relax. Uh, enjoy the experience. Some places obviously uh, run you through pretty thick and fast. Others are a bit more relaxed. Um, you know, four to six weeks is a realistic time frame for an instrument rating full-time. So it is a bit of a commitment, but well well worth it I think it's just fantastic training and I love teaching it and it's just uh, especially like just today even with the weather that we had to deal with um, my student this morning got some fantastic benefit out of it and was really really um, it's just rewarding to see people do that and knowing that when they come across it themselves they're they're going to be able to cope with it alright thanks Dan for that one really really good uh questions there everybody thank you i have some more saved up for next episode or two and i will address those then all right so that's it for this week's episode um thank you again for listening you can reach me in the sub uh, what was it the episode description there i've got my email instagram facebook to search for trent robinson aviation i will be there email me info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au and uh, if you're really loving the podcast then you can support me at patreon.com forward slash flight Training australia there's a bunch of tiers there that you can uh, get on and give me some support all of it helps and it will all be 100 uh invested back in equipment and putting together the podcast and youtube videos which are coming soon as i keep saying but i promise they are all right Until next week, everyone, blue skies, and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate, stay safe. Cheers.